Hi everybody, welcome to another episode of the Alchemist podcast, which is an extension of the blog Alchemist in the Making. I'm your host, Kimberly Ho, the millennial who finds interest in anything and everything with regards to architecture. So continuing on season three, this is probably one of our new recordings in 2021. So happy belated new year, everybody. Uh, we are still going on with the series, Is This What You Want It?, which is a collaborator with my friend Gina Ho. So today I have a very special guest, Daniel Moore, who you might recognize through Hearing Architecture podcast, New Architects podcast, New Architects Melbourne events, um, just a lot of things in general. But before I introduce Daniel any further, can I please get you to introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. So uh, my name's Daniel Moore and I'm the director of Open Creative Studio, which is an architecture firm. Um, basically doing projects between Melbourne and Tassie. Um, and yeah, we, we're also a creative practice. So we like to collaborate with people from different creative fields. Uh, so we do some podcasting, uh, we work on some production design and yeah, we collaborate with people who want to do some stuff within their community. So community organizations as well. So this is our third recording, actually, because the <laughs> first two recordings was going so well, but then we had a few technical difficulties. So apologies in advance for asking you the questions again. <laughs> it's all right. All the best stuff takes time. So <laughs> this yeah. is going to be the best interview ever, I think. I hope so. <laughs> I sincerely hope so. So as always, like now that we've had a bit of a break in comparison to our first two recordings, how do you feel now that? We've had our warm-up and then now you're on the other side instead of hosting a podcast. Yeah, being the guest on a podcast is a whole other um, experience, I think, you know, because when you're the host, you get to prepare and have a bunch of questions ready lined up for your guest and the sort of the biggest job is listening. So, yeah, I'm going to try to do what I can to help you in the edit, I think, when I um, give you my answers. So, yeah, it's a, it's definitely a different headspace for me today. So, yeah, I'll do my best. I think both of us will have to do our best in this setting. But before we start getting on to the main topic, is this what you wanted, Daniel? Could I please get you to share with us what was life like before architecture study? So basically things that have influenced you into architecture or things that have influenced your interests while you were growing up. Right. Well, yeah, growing up, uh, I... For most of my child life, I wanted to be a, a pilot, either a fighter pilot or a commercial airline pilot. And then someone convinced me in grade 11 that being a pilot would be like being a bus driver. So, you know, you'd get your pilot's license and then all of a sudden the joy would be gone or something. And for some reason, I think, you know, in my 17-year-old brain, I went, oh, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I'll give up this thing that I've been passionate about for the last 10 years of my life and uh, do a huge 180. So changed all of my subjects the next year to more uh, creative subjects rather than technical subjects and studied um, performance, um, creative writing, and a subject called housing and design, mm. where I was introduced to passive, solar passive and environmentally sustainable design. And then, yeah, when I was sort of tossing up between either doing performance or doing architecture at university, I stumbled across uh, a documentary, Frank Lloyd Wright, and I'd never really been shown what architecture even looks like um, and then thought, oh, gosh, you know, especially when I, when I saw Falling Water, I just thought, oh, my gosh, it's so stunning that a house could be that integrated into nature. And mm -hmm. so that really, yeah, really sort of pushed me over the edge and, and made me take the plunge into 
studying architecture. So yeah, that's that's basically what uh, what got me into it. It's a bit bit cliched that uh, Frank Lloyd Wright was the first <laughs> architect that I when I sort of sat up and took uh, took notice. But uh, yeah, that's what got me over the edge. Yeah, I mean, it. I guess perhaps for your group of friends in particular, it is the cliche of being inspired by an architect in particular, I think, because for me, as I said in our previous conversations, personally, I did not know any of these architects. In fact, it took me like perhaps two or three weeks into our architecture course before I actually knew who these architects were. Like yeah. my dad told me who Norman Foster is and I looked at him like, but it's only a while for me to know all these people, which is a little bit embarrassing because um, I think for me, I fall into the demographic of my family don't really want me to pursue something in the creative area. So the mediating factor for that was actually architecture, which is a bit of a shame that I think now that I'm here, I think if I look back, I can't really see myself anywhere else. So it's kind of nice. Yeah, I think I think that's that was a similar thing that happened to me, where people were saying, "You know, look, you've spent all this time doing technical subjects, and you love to draw, and you love to do creative projects, and architecture sits right between that. You know, it's a bit of creating, a bit of drawing, but also maths." And I was just <laughs> like, "Oh, yeah, I guess that makes sense." And then you start architecture, and you don't have to do a math subjects ever. So. Yeah, yeah. It's like I was yeah. a bit disappointed by that. Being, where is the maths? If anything, it's only scales, only time I need to think about like the right. conversions and such. Yeah, like span tables and things like that. Yeah. Oh, I still need to learn that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, at UTAS it was um because I went to the University of Tasmania and mm-hmm. they got us to yeah look at some span tables in building technology, but yeah, it wasn't we never I think maybe a, maybe a couple of times, like just or, or once it, actually in class, you know, with the lecturer directing us, showing us some of the formulas on the board. We had to do, you know, one calculation or something like that just to know as a rule of thumb. But, yeah, we never, ever had to, uh, you know, take an exam in maths or physics, never had to do that. So, yeah, that was, yeah, definitely outside of, of what we were focusing on at university at UTAS. So during your studies in architecture, like how was that experience for you as well? Like, because you've seen Falling Waterhouse and did you go into architecture school with a certain perception thinking that you'll design something like this immediately or were there things that took you by surprise as well? Um, the good thing about UTAS is that while I was there, they really leaned into the fact that the undergraduate degree was the Bachelor of Environmental Design. Mm-hmm. So for every single design project that we had there had to be an element of that project where we were thinking about the sustainable principles within that Mm. building so that was quite I I felt quite fortunate that we were we always had to think about how to make these buildings more efficient how to make them uh, actually work with nature um, Mm. and to to not just be designing buildings in space or in a place that didn't respond to the climate. Um, so yeah, it was, it was, I thought that was quite good that we almost didn't have a choice to, <laughs> to ignore the environment. We had to always design with it. So yeah, that was, I was quite, quite happy that I always had to consider the environment and that <laughs> in our design subjects. Yeah, <laughs> that is quite good. I think um, for now, like if just judging by the education background I have, because I went to Monash, like ours was very different. I don't know what Utah's curriculum is like, but for us, it was more about having the independence and making the decisions of what type of architecture we want to be interested in. So like our studios were very free form and then you've just got your core subjects 
they just need to take in. And so the sustainability part, I think it was there, but it was very touch and go because the term itself was quite broad in itself, which is another topic altogether for another discussion. <laughs> but like, yeah, I, I don't know how I feel if I did sustainability, I wonder how would that change my approach to design nowadays as well? Yeah. Well, I think uh, like you're saying, you know, the sort of term sustainability. Yeah. I remember Stephen Choi uh, was telling us about just the term, just the word sustainability. Like if you were to say your relationship was sustainable, would you say it was a good relationship? (laughs) No, it's just like keeping everything in place exactly as it is with no growth and no, uh, (laughs) you know, no, no benefit. So yeah, I think the the term just just green design is is a better way to think about it. And also, if more people are talking about regenerative design, so when we're talking about you know carbon positive design or you know buildings that are going to give back to the environment and you know, actually be producing good results for the environment as opposed to just being a consumer of the environment, I think that's a really positive way for us to move forward. But um, having that foundation of you know considering your design always with the environment that you're building where that building is going to be situated and how it's going to respond to the climate i think that's um that's always a good way to move forward and i mean as as regulations change i think we're always going to or there's going to be more impetus to design for our buildings to be really um, high performing which i think is really exciting so they're sort of going to force us to be you know designing high performance buildings which i think is really great yeah, it will be it will be interesting to see how like the future landscape of architecture would develop over time mm. as well. And that, so having said like because you carried that with you all the way, because going, I will probably ask you another question with regards to put your interest in performance later. So mm. when you finished your studies, did you carry that interest in sustainable or green design? with you afterwards like after graduating yeah yeah totally so I only applied to firms that had projects or won awards in sustainability Mm -hmm. so when I uh, decided to take a year out between the two degrees because I thought it would be a little bit uh (laughs) might be (laughs) I'm running a pretty big risk if I was going to study for five years uninterrupted without knowing what the hell this profession is that I'm going to about to be going into (laughs) so I took a year off to um to get some experience and to work in a firm and actually know what the nuts and bolts of working in an architecture firm was um so I yeah applied to a bunch of firms and I ended up taking a job at Design Inc Melbourne and they just won um, a bunch of awards and also achieved the first six star green star rating for a commercial building in in Australia for Council House 2 and that was a really exciting time there was a lot of debate about what um, environmentally sustainable design actually is and you know is it architecture um, and all those sorts of funny questions um, but it was really great being at a, a large top tier um, architecture firm and talking about all of our projects and how uh, and integrating into the projects sustainability and how we can make our buildings better by being high performance buildings so that was always the goal you know while I was at uni that I wanted to work on sustainable projects and mm-hmm. the best way to do that was to work at a sustainable practice so yeah I was quite fortunate to work at Design Inc on on that sort of scale yeah um, and then after working at Design Inc uh, I got to work at Breathe Architecture three different times <laughs> and that was uh, that was really fantastic uh, working on the smaller scale sustainable projects uh, because at Design Inc we were working on really large uh, institutional and public projects Mm -hmm. and when you get to that scale you have to work with your services consultants quite a lot 
to make sure that all of the uh, mechanics of the building are going to be very efficient because there's certain things that big buildings uh, where they need the services to be to make the building actually work well yeah. uh, but when you work on a smaller scale building you can you can do most things passively so working at breathe it was really great to get back to the the passive initiatives that you need to use on architecture to make them efficient and good for the environment so i really loved that i got to have that experience on both the small and the large scale for for esd projects so how long have you worked in firms before stepping out and then starting your own practice uh, so I graduated at the end of 2009 and then I worked in firms until 2016. Mm-hmm. And because my now wife, um, she's, uh, she's American and mm-hmm. we, were, we actually were in a long distance relationship between Australia and America for five years, um, I was flying to America quite a lot. So my lifestyle was never really suited to working at one firm for a really long time. I couldn't really make that happen. So even though I was a staff member at different firms, I was probably more or less like a contractor. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I worked at, if I sort of think about it and I'll sort of have to, I have to use my hands to visualize this. (laughs) I went designing, then breathe, then breathe again. Then I worked for a builder, Ficus Constructions, and that was oh. amazing. Um, when I worked on, when I designed um, All Press in Collingwood. Yeah. And then I went and worked at Plus Architecture and did some multi-res there for a year and then went back to Breathe. <laughs> and then after working at Breathe for the third time, yeah, I left there and then started Open Creative Studio. So, yeah, there was a lot of different, yeah, sort of little, when I say little, I mean like short stints of about six months up to about 18 months of working at different practices. What I would say is like to be able to work in this many practice, like the short stints, I, I don't know, perhaps like for a lot of my friends, like a lot of recent graduates for us, like there is that risk of not um, of being able to have that type of flexibility mm. as well, like the balancing of it, because for us, we don't want to give the impression that we're not really wholeheartedly there in comparison to like we do want to be there it's just that we've got so many things like you've got so many opportunities around us now that we want to choose like we want to have that option but it's been a bit of a struggle I think in terms of our confidence and having that courage to do that Mm. as well yeah I think there's definitely a mentality to to that type of work um or the type of work that architects do I think in my experience I've felt like most people would want to have a salary position and you know commit to a firm for a longer period of time Mm -hmm. the jobs that I took where I was a contractor it was you know those positions were advertised as contract roles um if you're starting out and you're looking for for jobs sometimes the contractor roles are are really beneficial because uh, I've worked with quite a lot of people who started in the contract role but then at the end of the contract the firm said we love you as part of our team and we love the work that you're doing so you would like to offer your position as a salary employee so yeah it's I think it's one of those things where it's just for me you know and my mentality of taking on those roles it was really that I had a particular <laughs> lifestyle that I had to um, where I needed to find a work that would sort of accommodate the trips that I was making and also being happy to take them on. Um, so there were there were a bunch of times where even within the contract where I was meant to be, uh, you know, staying at my desk I, before I'd you know, when I made a plan to leave, I'd, I'd give them heaps of, uh, give the firm heaps of notice, as much notice as I could. And I would say, I'm, going, I'm actually going to be going to the States for two weeks. And, you know, if you have to let me go because of that, I understand that. But during that time, you know, 
know, I'm a contractor, so you don't, you don't have to pay me. This is kind of just how it has to be. And I, th- I th- felt really worried the first couple of times that I had that conversation. Um, yeah. But the fantastic thing was is that all of the firms, because I was so open and honest about it, they yeah. really appreciated that. So, you know, any, any people that I talk to now who are directors of other firms who do hire a lot of people, they always say, you know, honesty is the best is the best policy. So when you go in for those interviews or you're talking about what sort of work-life balance you need, being totally upfront and front and honest is always the best, always the best policy because you know, not, not every firm wants to only hire the person who says, yep, I'm going to work 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I just need a job. <laughs> you know, as good as that might be for some practices, there's definitely not all practices want that or, you know, need that kind of employee. Yeah. So it's, it's really, I think just you're being really realistic with what you need and what you want to get out of the work that you're going to do and, and looking for those opportunities Yeah. Um, and being open to all of the different work arrangements that there can be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Speaking of giving notice, um, I remember like the NAM, the I think it was the last public NAM forum you were talking about how like you were saying you have to give them a heads up because you had another another avenue which was your voice acting. Mm. And so could you tell us more about how did voice acting come about as well? Okay, so my my mum's a voiceover artist. So you know, growing up, that was just sort of a, an omnipresent part of my life. Uh, <laughs> and we would have family discussions about um, you know the performance that people were giving in ads and in movies and all of those sorts of things. So it was just, and also because my mum was a voiceover artist um, in that culture, and at the time when I was growing up, there weren't really any represented child voiceover artists. Mm-hmm. So when there were scripts that needed a, a child to read the script, the studios or the, the creatives would just call the adult voiceover artists and say, oh, could you bring your kids in and we'll give them this paid gig? So when mm-hmm. we were kids, we used to go in and we were introduced to the process of doing voiceover when we were quite young. Um, so in that respect, I was quite lucky that I was introduced into this culture and into this family from a really, really young age. And yeah, mum was also part of like, you know, a really big program when, when I was a kid, which was called Blinky Bill. Yeah. Um, and so I was right in the demographic that that cartoon was aimed for. So I was watching that every every night. And then, you know, after the show would finish, I'd just sort of say to mum, oh, I really like that line and I really like that scene where everyone was, you know, <laughs> Miss Magpie and Marcia and Nutsy and, and all those guys are going crazy and, and doing different stuff. And then we'd be able to talk about what that process was or finding part of her voice or finding that emotion that she was doing. So, yeah, I always loved the actual process of it. So after mm-hmm. I graduated from architecture school, I actually wanted to give it a bit of a go. Mm. Um, and so I spent six months while I was working at Design Inc. One day a week on my lunch break, I would um, ride my bike up to PBS radio station, community radio station in Collingwood. And uh, for about 30 minutes, I'd just go in their studio and they'd give me some community service announcements and yeah. I'd just, I'd do them for free. And it was basically just learning how to be directed and learning you know what it's like being in the studio again um and at the end of that i made a demo and gave it to my mum and my brother just to say you know i'm having a lot of fun doing this it's you know it's a fun way to break up the week and then my brother um who's an actor and voiceover artist as well he he forwarded it to his agent without even asking me and his agent gave me a call and said i have to represent you you know can we please have a chat and yeah so once i got represented it made it a lot easier but that was another thing where 
I feel like a lot of younger architects and um, grads or students uh, have some form of side hustle that they're mm-hmm. doing, that they're really passionate about. And it's just finding out how to, how to do that without compromising what your job is. And so I had, a, you know, when I got an agent, I, well, even before I got the agent, I just said, you know, like, how much work are you going to be trying to give me? And then they said, you know, oh, look, we're trying to give you as much work as possible. So oh, no. I just said to them, you know, uh, all right how long will these things take? And, you know, it depends on what the job is, but I had to then sit down with my boss at Design Inc and said, okay, I've just been represented by this voiceover agent and I really love it and I love the process. I've been told it shouldn't take too long if I get booked for these things. And they said, when I'm starting out, it might be once a week or once a month. So it shouldn't be too bad. Would you be open to me doing this as a bit of a side hustle? Cause I'm, I really love it. And if it takes me two hours to go out and do the session and come back, then I'll just stay late at work for another two hours. Yeah. And I'm really grateful to all the firms that I worked at that they said that was okay. So mm-hmm. that was my arrangement at every firm that I worked at where I could go off and do a job. And then however many hours I was out of the office, I would just make up those hours. And I think there was only maybe two times where it was really frustrating to the people that I worked with where they <laughs> actually needed me, you know, only me <laughs> while yep. I was out doing a session. So yeah, I appreciate that there was only thankfully only two times where it was very frustrating for my, for the companies that I was working for. Yeah. But um, yeah, that was, I'm so thankful that they let me, that they let me do that because it's really, you know, mm-hmm. you want to aim to just do the work that you're passionate about. And yeah, I, I really love actually being in the studio. It's kind of funny when I was at Breathe, we were working on this project for the Slack headquarters in Melbourne. Mm-hmm. And they wanted to have their meeting rooms be sound isolated, so they had all this acoustic panelling in their in mm-hmm. their offices, um, or sorry, in their meeting rooms. And once we were, they were finished and we were doing the walkthrough, a couple of people were like, "Oh God, I hate." The, the sort of dead acoustics in these meeting rooms. It sounds really oppressive to me. And then I was saying, well, it sounds like a hug to me. <laughs> like being, <laughs> being in a studio, it must like sort of take me back to being a kid when my mum used to take me into studios or something. Yeah. But as soon as I'm in a room that is actually acoustically dead, like like you get in a professional studio, it just feels like it feels all warm and fuzzy for me. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, this is so nice. <laughs> so, it's nostalgia. I, I think absolutely it's definitely like a huge nostalgia hit whenever Mm. i'm in a studio so yeah that's a that's another big benefit i think that when i was allowed to go to studios and just sit in the studio in that nice dead acoustic space i was just like oh this is sort of recharging me a little bit (laughs) um so yeah it's i've been quite fortunate but yeah often when i talk to people about being an architect and a voiceover artist they're just Mm -hmm. like wow those two things are absolutely not connected in any way (laughs) i'm just like you know what you're absolutely right (laughs) i would have thought that you would go into theater design just mainly because again you did performance in as one of your subjects in high school and Mm. then there's architecture because that was actually how i kind of got roped into architecture like studying Mm. architecture at my university because I was saying I was watching a school play and I from afar I was looking thinking I kind of want to do that like I want to be able to design something that make people smile and that was what theatre design meant to me back then evidently my area of interest has changed now but like yeah that was my impression as well (laughs) yeah well I think I think that's a really smart way of 
thinking about it because you know I, I think it's kind of strange that um well not, maybe not strange it's just not for me mm-hmm. um but i think it's it's good that at university where they introduce us to all different typologies of building yeah. um but there is a huge benefit i've found that if you when you're passionate about one typology or maybe a couple of typologies there's so much to know about (laughs) all of the different typologies of buildings that you know there are a lot of people who specialize and when you specialize in you know hospital design or sports stadium design um if you're an absolute sports nut and an architect i mean designing sports stadiums or arenas or sports um facilities for for small councils out in regional australia your understanding and I think your empathy for what place, you know, sports facilities give to a community and give to sports teams. And, you know, so it's not just the players, it's also the people watching. It's also the community who's trying to, you know, engage with all the people who are their neighbours and friends. Yeah. Um, I think that sort of column A, column B process in architecture is a really important one that, that everyone should go through because sort of being a general architect on all typologies it's a big sort of environment, big, um, what's the sort of good analogy for it? It's sort of like an ecosystem of different buildings. Yeah. You know? And sort of doing all of them, it can be tricky to be that good at understanding all of them, you know, at the highest level so that you're really delivering yeah. uh, high results. Um, so, yeah, I think there's always going to be a way for, for people to find that column A, column B job in architecture that really brings their passions passions out. Going on to what you say, like column A and column B, then I would say like, even though you said voice art, voice acting, as well as architecture, two different things, then would you say that you're moving on to hearing architecture as well as the new Architects Melbourne podcast is perhaps the culmination of these two areas then? Well, yes. <laughs> I think that was like when I was, um, yeah, when I was basically doing this exercise myself, mm-hmm. um, I... I didn't know what, yeah, where it could go. I was thinking like how could being a voiceover artist and being an architect in any way come together? And I was definitely thinking what you were thinking where it's like, well, you know, I love the performing world and and working with those types of creatives. So maybe it is about getting into theatre design Mm -hmm. or even recording studio design. But, you know, after talking to a bunch of people in recording studios after I'd been to sessions, uh, the vast majority of those guys, um, because they they know sound engineering so well, is they design their own studios anyway. <laughs> so that was that sort of shut that down a little bit. But um, yep. also, yeah, because of NAM, so I was already involved in New Architects Melbourne, and you know I, I'm a bit of a sucker for having a chat. So yeah. <laughs> <the>, uh, <laughs> so when I sort of thought, oh, yeah, okay, if I can bring that having a chat with the voiceovers and talking about architecture that does sound like the right intersection. You know, it's like the Venn diagram of my, of my interests coming together. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, that was sort of how I could bring all those things together. And it has been, you know, it's a real guilty pleasure. And I think that's, you know, part of feeling, you know, getting a lot of fulfillment out of your job is when you do find something where you're a bit like, am I actually like sort of getting paid to do this thing that I love? And I'm, you know, I would do it for fun, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know, if I if I had a, you know, didn't have a choice. And 
yeah, so that's been really great. And it, it's a really fantastic experience getting to connect with and talk to architects from all over Australia for the Hearing Architecture podcast. And then other architects who are also at the same, well, most of them are at the same stage of their career as me um, for the New Architects podcast. So yeah, it's been a really great guilty pleasure. And yeah, I'm really, really excited to see where that goes. Like a small side note and a bit of a derail was that one of the reasons why this whole podcast actually happened was because in third year was when I first saw the posters of New Architects podcast being displayed in uni and oh, I remember right. I was talking to my coordinator and I said I kind of want to be like the student representative of that podcast <laughs> like I was this close to like sending an email asked would you be interested in having a student on board um, mm. evidently that didn't happen because third year was the year when I was like finalizing my bachelor's and then that idea faded away a bit before like going uh, working overseas I was thinking like a better outreach is podcasting but in Hong Kong it's not something that we're very familiar with and not very popular so kind of took that idea with me and then after not many of my friends like writing that much I'm like oh you know what might as well just just do it because <laughs> that's the only way to get the ideas out there. Yeah, I think often that's um, that's a really good thing to do is like if you really want to do something, um, I know that sometimes I sort of, I haven't ended up doing something that I might be really passionate about because yeah. I talk to a bunch of people and I can't get other people interested. Yeah. But when I can't shake that interest and I can't shake that passion, sometimes it's really just about doing it and not caring for the result yeah <laughs> like if you just do it and do it because you're really enjoying it and yeah. then you put it together and you just put it out there like that's the fantastic thing about anything that's digital media is that even for architecture students or graduates you might do a studio where the result you felt wasn't exactly what you wanted to do but mm -hmm. you know you might have got a good mark but it still wasn't exactly what you wanted to do there's nothing stopping you reopening your files and designing it exactly the way you want to do it and then yeah. putting it into your portfolio and with a result that actually makes you happy so yeah, I, I remember that I had a lot of lecturers who used to say that to me before I graduated where they were just saying, if something about your portfolio doesn't make you happy or you feel doesn't represent you and what you the work that you'd like to be doing it, doing, just change it. Mm. <laughs> and they were just saying, you know, so you're gonna get a mark, sure, but just change it so that your portfolio represents you and the work that you really love. I think it also takes that drive and effort because it's also finding that motivation that makes you want to change those works because sometimes you don't know um, how, like the back end process is not something that gets displayed to a lot of people, but it does take time to get all these drawings finalized and be happy to mm. level. So it is finding that space and time to make it work as well. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, well, yeah, you have to you have to really want it, you know. And I think yeah, that's something that definitely comes up, especially with um, you know people that I know now who are mm. who are hiring younger people in their practices. Is mm. things like a lot of the jobs for for younger graduates or students might put them into a documentation team. Mm. Um, and if you're going to be working at a large practice who hire lots of people, yeah, um, that's the chances are relatively high to be doing documentation or things that aren't pure design yeah um and in that and that's sort of the real reality of the job um there's yep. a lot more of that work so if you really want to be an architect or you really want to work in the architecture profession sometimes those jobs or the processes that don't seem as glamorous or don't seem 
to have, you know, the outcomes might not be what you pictured when you were picturing being an architect, you know. I, yeah. I was at uni, I was picturing, you know, oh, when I graduate, I'm going to be wearing a tie, a bow tie, <laughs> and I'll have my sleeves all rolled up. I'm going to be on a nice big drafting table and get to make drawings every day. And, Stop you know, <laughs> exactly. And, you know, at the end of the day, uh, I was making drawings every mm-hmm. day, but I wasn't doing the you know sort of the napkin sketches that I thought uh, most architects might be working on um, it yeah. was actually you know you have to actually find out a way that a balustrade now uh, this new new system of balustrade can connect to our slab details so that it's still compliant with the building code you know that's the sort of Sort of picking away through legislation or through you know through codes, as well as drawing, and you know you might produce one drawing a day or, you know, and the, and the more that you do that, the faster you'll just be able to know. Oh yeah, we can't do that. Uh, yeah, the height of the balustrade has to be this high because of this other drawing I did, and you know we tried this and it doesn't make the building surveyor happy. So you know, yeah. things just take a little bit, a little bit of time to get to the point where there's less referencing and less um, <laughs> might be doing doing the, um, the the real grunt work of following up on um, you know what, what will actually get you certified set of drawings for for your building permit <laughs> <laughs> yeah it, it's a I think it's a long journey just for everybody I think like personally for me in this year um, or even last year just talking to a lot of people and I may still be young in comparison, young in quotes, by the way. But like I get, I always have these time, um, people telling me that you still got plenty of time before achieving the goal. But at the same time, I think for a lot of us, it's just probably for me, I'm quite future orientated. So for me, it's sometimes I feel like I'm competing against time and just looking at the amount of things I want to accomplish doesn't feel like I can accomplish that in amount of time as well so it's like slowly building that patience to say that you will accumulate all these knowledge but you just need to make sure that you are going to stick it out and then to reference like one of my friend um, previous episodes with another friend like you do definitely have to be really passionate about it or have um, something that makes you be interested in if not you're not going to be able to get to where you want to be that's right and also the big thing that I when I thought I was there have been a bunch of times actually where I thought that I wasn't sort of made of the right stuff to be mm-hmm. an architect or I was almost like feeling like the architecture profession didn't want me because mm. the mould of an architect was someone who lives, eats and breathes architecture 24-7 and I was, you know, sitting next to some people at a number of firms. I've had heard this conversation three or four times where people were saying, you know, I just don't understand how some people aren't watching architecture documentaries and reading architecture books like all the time. People are like, yeah, like what else can they be doing, you know, with their spare time? You know, what, what other interests could they have? And I'm just sitting there going like, oh, my God, no, I'm really happy to binge The Mandalorian when I get home. <laughs> I don't want, I don't. I don't necessarily need to be, oh, yeah, I've got to get home and I've got to finish reading Genius Loci or The Australian Ugliness so that I, you know, can definitely tick those boxes and be like, yep, I'm doing more of those architecture boxes that I need to tick. And I think that's a huge thing where it's just like there's no right architect person. Yeah, yeah. We're, We're all individuals and I really feel like the more variety we have of people with different interests and different backgrounds is only going to make the culture of architecture stronger. And it's yeah, only yeah. going to make the work better 
because if we're all watching the same projects, if we're all reading the same books, if we're mm-hmm. all, you know, in awe of the same projects, things are going to start to get homogenized. And yeah. it's it, it just, just feels like we're going to end up building the exact same white box. Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I just, so I think that everyone, you know, still talking with, hanging out with people who aren't architects as well. There was someone who I used to work with and I was just saying, you know, you're not going to get anywhere as an architect if you only hang out with architects. And I think we've got a really lovely collegial culture in architecture and talking with each other and hanging out with each other is really, really important. Mm -hmm. But only having conversations with architects (laughs) is going to end up with a horrible echo chamber. So, yeah, talking with our other people who aren't involved in architecture at all, like Mm -hmm. not even in the allied professions, can I think help us grow and and just get better as communicators and get better as designers? Yeah. So yeah, I think it's really important that you know whatever recharges you, whether that is going to the NGV to architecture exhibitions or reading architecture books, or going home and watching um, you know basketball or <laughs> making a kite. Uh, or you know, making a podcast about uh, you know League of Legends, you know whatever whatever it is, I think that's just going to end up you know as long as it's yeah building you up and keeping that energy going, that's yeah. all. It's all good. Having yeah. said that, this is just probably a question just play on top of my head now. Then, do you think like just looking back at hearing architecture as well as new architects podcast, do you think you'll bring that type of cross disciplinary? aspect into it in the future episodes as well because like looking at hearing architecture as well as new architects melbourne is currently we're still interviewing a lot of architects or like mm. people from our profession do you see it perhaps expanding into different fields as well? um yeah potentially i mean open creative studio so for my practice doing new architects podcast and and hearing architecture is good for understanding the production of of a podcast mm-hmm. so doing that has been really good at sort of refining the, the producer role. So working with other people to make podcasts, that makes a lot of sense. But also with architecture podcasts, I think what now working on two architecture podcasts, and because I listen to a lot of different podcasts, especially <laughs> with architecture as well, to know yeah. what's happening out there, yeah. I feel like there's so many architecture podcasts where all we've done is we've said, oh, what does an architecture podcast look like? Okay, yeah. so if we diagram it, it's people talking about architecture. Yeah, and I mean, <laughs> I'm sort of getting to the point now. Where I'm just like, okay, we've nailed that format, guys. Yeah, <laughs> what can we do with podcasting? Yeah, that communicates architecture or communicates design in a different way. Does mm-hmm. it have to be just people talking, um, and or does it have to be just an interview format? So that's mm. the sort of thing that excites me about what where the podcasting or where the crossover of different things can go because format is something that we can explore. We don't mm. just have to look at what's happened before. You know, it's just like precedents. We don't just look at a precedent and say, oh, okay, so that's what a stadium looks like. We're going to build that exact stadium. Mm-hmm. So we're looking at podcasts and say, okay, it's about communication. So now that we know that yeah, interviewing <laughs> works quite well yeah. um, or people having a roundtable discussion works quite well, what else can we think about how else, what else can we either talk about or what other mediums or tools can we use to, yeah. to get this message across? So I think that's what's really exciting to me is, yeah, developing maybe a format for a podcast where it's it's not like what we've heard before, mm-hmm. 
because yeah, I think I'm I'm going to continue to listen to the interview podcast because I still think they're interesting, and that's why so many people do it because it's effective. Yeah. Um, but I'm I'm interested to see what could be next. Then would you say that that's your future ambition? That would be like a new podcast that you'll be making. It's a different type of medium, perhaps. Yeah, I think my future ambition is to, uh, I mean, especially for my practice, when I was at uni and and learning more about practice management. So actually how these practices put together and what are the projects that they're doing. Mm. Um, the majority of practices that I'd say it would be like, you know, we're a multidisciplinary architecture firm. <laughs> that would be like the start of almost 90% of architecture um, Very much. websites. Yeah. And when you look through their work, it's, you know, it's architecture, interiors, maybe some civic um, master planning, urban design. And it's just like that really just feels like architecture to me. I don't know if that's multidisciplinary. I think that's architects do all kinds of design to do with the built environment. Yeah. Um, but then the one practice to me that stood out, and I think there are a lot of others that do this as well, but the mm-hmm. first one that I saw that stood out where they were dis- multidisciplinary was uh, the Ames office. So Charles and Ray Ames. Uh, yes, um, yes, yes. And so they did some architecture, but they also did industrial design, they did design toys. Um, they designed, they made films, they designed exhibitions, they did all kinds of things and it's taking our design process education and mm. seeing how our design process knowledge can feed into all different aspects of, of culture, really. Yeah. So I feel like that's where I want my work as Open Creative Studio to develop, that we're still open. Like the huge part of Open Creative Studio is that we are open to everything <laughs> creative. Um, so that's that's a huge part there. But, yeah, in terms of the podcasting future, I'm definitely interested in, yeah, I'd love to develop a format that's, that, yeah, just sounds like something that we haven't heard before. Because, yeah. I, mean, I mean, I'm probably a lot like a lot of people with podcasting is that the two first podcasts I ever heard were Serial mm-hmm. and 99% Invisible. Yes. And hearing hearing both of those, it just sounded, even though I'm a huge radio person and grew up in a radio family, it just felt like, wow, what is what is this? You know, it's, I just love how they're feeding me this story in such mm. a beautiful way and I'm seeing it so vividly through the way that they're giving it to me. So yeah, that's what I'm I'm passionate about. I think it's great to start with the interview side of things and then just to build on that. So yeah, yeah, I'd, uh, yeah. It's we'll see how we go because it's it's definitely a big a big task. Because on the production side of things, it's very much <laughs> yeah. As soon as you sort of break the mold, if you sort of start to reinvent the wheel a little bit, just the production of it becomes a little bit more complicated. So mm. yeah, we'll see how we go. Yeah, I think like even just personal experience, like just the whole editing process, because you helped me so much when we were getting this whole shebang started. It was like (laughs) making sure like you edit, do the edit straight away, or at least just have a system that your editing will go smoothly. And I remember the very first time I did it, I was thinking like, oh my goodness, there's so many arms in the episode. (laughs) It's going to a point where I start recognizing the voice waves. Of the yeah. arms for that particular <laughs> person. It was yeah. hard. It, it is hard. And I mean, that's the other great thing about podcasting or digital media is that you get to set the parameters of what's True. of what you know you want to take out, like what you want to edit out of this stuff. Yeah. And there's lots of very successful podcasts where you where they record it and then they so they hit the record button. And then when the interview's done, they hit stop and then they hit 
they write a little comment about what it's about and then they hit distribute. So there's mm. zero editing. So I don't think a successful podcast means that people haven't said um or uh or done weird coughs and breaths. You know, it's it's really, <laughs> it comes down to the curator or producer to say, what, what will you accept, you know, and uh, a huge part of both new architects and hearing architecture was that I just, I want to give everyone the the best service so that it puts their best self forward. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that's why we do spend quite a lot of time editing. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, even though it takes a lot of time, yeah. um, I really just, I like that I'm doing that for my architectural comrades that I'm saying, oh, you know, there was a little stumble there. We can take that out. No one ever knows about that. There was a little cough there or <laughs> sounded like you spat on my microphone pretty bad, you know. <laughs> so, so I think that just, you know, being helpful to each other, that's yeah. that's going to end up, you know, helping us all as a profession and as a community grow. So, yeah, it's like yeah. Not, not just the great stories that we can tell but also <laughs> letting everyone sound as, as good as possible. Yeah, maybe before we go on to the final couple of questions to wrap things up, do you have, like, looking back at all the episodes you've produced so far, do you have ones that are your favourites or ones that have taken you by surprise then for both of them? Um, That's a very interesting question because I'm usually <laughs> quite, I'm quite, you know, I, I like to go back over what I've done and sort of analyze it and go like that was done well I want to do that again or that wasn't done so well I don't want to do that again mm-hmm. but I think because podcasting takes so much time in the edit once I've listened through each episode all the way through for the final time I really do go back and listen to them again which I probably uh, should do yeah. um probably my favorite yes my favorite episode so far was probably Anthony Clark's for the new Architects podcast. Uh, and the reason why it was exactly like you said, you know, it was a surprising interview mm-hmm. where I think a lot of people have, you know, their opinion about the media in architecture is, well, it's just marketing or it's promotion. Mm-hmm. So all anyone is ever going to say is like the best version of themselves and that their projects went perfectly and everything went exactly you know, exactly according to plan. You know, this, <laughs> the, the, the traditional architecture story is we started this project and it went perfectly to plan, but we then you watch something like, <laughs> exactly. I mean, that's that's what makes something like Grand Designs as successful as it is because their whole format is they started this project and everything went wrong. You know, it's yep. like <laughs> they decided to self-manage their project and everything fell apart. Yep. That's basically the format that they work with. And Anthony's interview was, it was just beautiful because, he surprised me. Uh, so Anthony's the director of Bloxus. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, he just surprised me because starting a firm and being a young practice definitely doesn't go smoothly. Mm-hmm. And people probably have expectations about how much money we're making. They, I think a lot of people have opinions about the way that we work and that, yeah, you've got to, you've got to follow all these rules to, to get to the, the point where you get to start your own practice. And he did things his own way and he made mistakes along the way and he was still making business decisions where he was saying, you know, it's probably not the right choice. Mm. I, I quite liked the honesty. Well, I really loved the honesty and I loved that it was not just telling us that story that most architects will give when we yeah. get the opportunity to talk about our work. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's the, that is the truth, I think, of so many practices and so so much of the work that architects do is we'll start these things, start these projects, 
with great aspirations and great ideas. And uh, along the way, we either find it that the idea itself might be wrong. It might not work at all. And we have to let it go or it has to transition and pivot into something else to make it work. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, I think all of these types of conversations are really worthwhile. And just hearing the glowing rainbow unicorn stories can help us feel like, oh, yes, we can have these (laughs) glorious moments, but also hearing the stories where things won't go according to plan yeah. and then but then also learning from it and then taking the next steps to to say right let's assess why it didn't work as well as we'd hoped yeah and and how can we succeed next time that's really important and i think it's also to say like there's that vulnerability that makes us more approachable as a profession as a whole mm. as well because if we're always being perfectionists about things it makes us a little bit unapproachable. At least that's my opinion anyway. I think it's yeah. that balancing of, again, being completely honest, as you said earlier on, and also just being more human that the error will always be there and it's up to you to learn from it whether you oh, like definitely. it or not. I 100% agree. It's, it's definitely a balancing act because what we know and what we're trained to do is yeah. a very, very hard complicated thing and Mm -hmm. i think that that also that always needs to be remembered and retained somewhere yeah but it shouldn't be sort of at the forefront of your mind it shouldn't be like the ego part that's drawing you (laughs) i can do a difficult and complex thing worship me you know (laughs) so it should be i think it should be like at the back of our mind Mm. so that then when you're talking to someone and if they're asking for advice and then you Mm -hmm. give them the advice and they ignore it you mm-hmm. can still just say, okay, well, just so you know, we're talking, you know, I'm telling you this based on all of this experience and I'm trying to help. Yeah. Um, and if they don't want to take it, they just need to be reminded that they didn't take this advice mm-hmm. and that was their choice. Mm-hmm. So it, it is a balancing act because I think we're, we're always going to be talking with people who want our help mm-hmm. and people have the choice to take it or not. So, um, and you don't want to, you know, you can't say that someone's stupid or, or that they don't appreciate you or, you know, so you've just got to give the advice and then let them make a decision and, you know, yeah, doing it in such a way that doesn't shut you off from the community, you know, once you have <laughs> given that advice is is a real, you know, it's, it's an ongoing challenge, I think. Yeah, definitely. Well, to perhaps like conclude everything Obviously, the big question is looking back at everything you've done so far and all the things you've achieved and accomplished, is this what you wanted? Uh, yes, it, it is. And it's it's a funny thing because I think if I was to show myself, you know, a, a picture of what, what my work looks like and what my portfolio looks like to myself in, say, first year or second year, mm-hmm. I, I, my first or second year self probably would have been like, what are you doing? Like, just, <laughs> just go and design a museum or a gallery, man. Like, what are you doing? Mm. Um, but the, the more that I've gotten to know myself and gotten to know the work that I like and the people that I, the, the, especially the clients that I love to work with, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely as close to having, you know, the, the ideal outcome and, and work uh, portfolio and work arrangement that they have right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I'm st- still, you know, continuing to try to improve and to, to keep giving people great service and to keep making projects that I can stand back from and say, oh, that was, you know, I got that across the line. That was, I'm really happy that the, the client got this. 
but yeah, I just think it's uh, <laughs> it's it is it is what I want, but it's also it, it's probably different to what I thought I might have wanted a long time ago. Yeah. So yeah, I think that was a a big realization that any time I was just like ask myself that question, you know, is this really what I wanted? You know, it's yeah. um, that what you want can change, and that's okay. You know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> yeah, I think. Um, before like going to the other two questions as well it's like yeah a lot of people don't realize that what they wanted in the past in comparison to what they want now is very mm. different so yeah definitely thanks for bringing that up <laughs> making a big point okay and then the two sentimental questions is do you have a letter to your past self and then as well as a letter to the future ah uh, if you mean if i could write a letter to my past self yeah um if i could <laughs> if i could write a letter to my past self i'd probably just say just chill out you know um i was pretty uh well i wasn't pretty i was extremely opinionated when i was younger to the point where i stopped listening a lot of the time oh. um and you know it's been a a long process to just to, to shut up a lot of the time and yeah. to spend most of my time listening and and also to know when you know my education and training and experience is telling me that I do know what is the right thing or the thing that I would prefer to do so it's sort of quieting myself I would say you know just you don't have to have arguments with people all the time about stuff <laughs> that you really when you really really think it might be the right way forward or it might be the truth or or factual because yeah, it's it's not always for benefit if you win an argument. You know, you might win an argument and lose a friend. You know, yeah. <laughs> how is yeah, that going to be? How is that going to be good in the long run? Um, and then to my future self, um, if I had to write a letter to my future self, I'd probably just say, as if, if you're different, then I'm happy. Ah, very <laughs> you know, nice. Because I uh, there are some times where I get a bit sad or a bit low, thinking back to the things I've done or said. Um, when I was younger and I'm either terrified or I'm you know, extremely sad or I wish I could have done things differently and I know that if I was presented with the same moments um, now, I would do things differently and I would be more compassionate and empathetic and yeah. I'd be quieter. Yeah, my letter to myself would be, as long as you're a different person, then that's good. Because I think we always oh, we need so to be good. we need to be uh, or for myself you know what I try to work on is that um, I'm not just going to always stay as my current self you know I have to to keep growing and you know as long as I'm looking back and thinking that I was not so great that probably means that I'm growing in the right direction. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's lovely, Daniel. Thank you so much for being on here. Um, I have to say, like, thank you again, like, as always, for being one of the biggest advisors for Alchemist Podcast and being a huge support to all of us because I think, like, just speaking to other architecture podcast startups, we all are very grateful to have you for giving us advice and being so generous for your time as well uh, no worries well i mean you know sometimes it's just like when you've got that idea you do need someone to just say cool all right let's let's do it like <laughs> you're gonna have to do it but <laughs> i'm happy to to give you a little bit of advice along the way you know so you have done everything yourself so i take very little responsibility for the success <laughs> for the success that you've had so good on you but yeah i'm very happy to have yeah listened to and and talk to you about the first season and to yeah just been been with you along the way in the yeah. journey Thank you. Um, nice. Closing off, do you have any media handles? Like, evidently, I'll put them in the notes, but anything you'd like to advertise as well? 
Um, just, I mean, not necessarily. I mean, my, my Instagram handle for open creative studio is just open creative studio. <laughs> um, and you can listen to hearing architecture and new architects, the new architects podcast on all the podcast platforms. Yep. And yeah, for anyone, including everyone listening to the Archimist podcast, if you are liking what you're hearing, you should rate review and subscribe because that's a really great, great way for the podcast to keep growing and for other people to, <laughs> Uh, discover it so the more rates and reviews and subscriptions that any podcaster gets um, it actually shows up a little bit more when people search for you know architectural podcasts so definitely subscribe rate review and subscribe to the Archimist <laughs> podcast um, and yeah if you haven't listened to Hearing Architecture or the new Architects podcast yet you should uh, yeah I reckon you should give that a listen because yeah, we love making it yeah also don't forget to rate and review and subscribe to those as well please <laughs> i generally don't say these things it's very awkward well anyhow um thanks again and thank you everybody for joining in for the, uh, another episode of season three for Alchemist podcast as always please subscribe and visit us on instagram if you've got any ideas but in the meantime please stay safe and we'll see you for another episode bye I'll let you say bye for some. Uh, <laughs> thank you so much, Kim. See you, everyone. Thanks for listening. <laughs>